The Parlor Room is an official podcast of Harvard Business School Online. You go to a supplier and you say, would you like to do business with me? Here's how it's going to work. You're going to keep the inventory until I call you at midnight the day before. And I'm going to say, I need 1,000 iPads at the Fifth Avenue store at 6 a.m. And you're going to deliver them to me. Wow. And they say, okay, and when are you going to pay me when I feel like it? What? And you say, yes, sir. Let's do that again. Welcome to The Parlor Room, where business concepts come to life. My name is Chris Lenane. I'm the creative director of Harvard Business School Online. So why is this show called The Parlor Room? Well, parlor rooms were meant for discussion, for telling stories, and that's what we're doing here. I invite Harvard Business School professors over to our parlor room, and we learn business concepts through real-life stories. On this episode, I'm joined by HBS professor and business podcast royalty, Mahir Desai. Professor Desai simplifies the complex by blending intellect with storytelling. In a moment, you'll hear him do just that. While helping him make his HBS online course, Leading with Finance, I saw firsthand the inaccessible become accessible. I'm no longer afraid of finance. Well, I'm no longer as afraid of finance. We'll learn about the inner workings of one of the world's most iconic brands, and Mahir even talks me through unresolved anxiety from a high school dance. It's, it's, it's sort of like a tough love moment. So let's get started. Welcome to the parlor room. All right, so I know, I know where I want to start. Okay, let's do it. Finance, finance, what's the difference? You know, I don't know, man. I should have the answer to this question. And the reality is I say both and I interchange them and I don't even know what I'm using at different times. So I have no wisdom on that. I had a feeling that if you said finance, you would know what you're talking about. And if you said finance, you were just trying to work with your checkbook. Is that right? That's my perception of it. So I, I think finance, finance sounds fancier for yeah. sure. Okay. And it throws people. So, yeah, maybe I should use it. I honestly, I don't have control over it. I just say whatever just kind of, But both are right, you're saying. They are, exactly. There's okay. no one way in finance, Chris, right? Well, that's what I've learned from you. <laughs> exactly. So, your book, Wisdom of Finance, I know we've talked about this before, but I think one of my favorite sections is the Jane Austen and the Pride and Prejudice right. section. Can right. we go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the premise of the book is that these big ideas of finance that we were talking about actually aren't just unique to finance. They're about life. And in a way, I was trying to take finance out of some big ivory tower and put it into people's lives. And the way to do that is with the humanities, mm -hmm. literature and religion and philosophy. So for every big idea in finance, I was looking for like these analogs in literature and history. And so for risk management, which is a really, really big idea in finance, uh, it turns out Jane Austen is just like a spectacular guide. Yeah. So um, in Pride and Prejudice, which is this classic novel about Lizzie Bennet, you know, she is basically dealing with suitors. And one of the things that Jane Austen thinks about deeply is that, um, you know, it's it's a risky world for especially young women who are trying to make choices uh, in a way that it's not risky for men because it's easy for a man to make a mistake and it's not easy for a young woman to make a mistake in that era. And so she's got a big risk management problem. <laughs> and the really fun part is as she's seeing these suitors come, you know, one is 
maybe handsome but a drunk and another one is you know solid but ugly or you know whatever it is um she's got to try to juggle these things and the really fun part is she basically gives voice to risk management strategies like she gives voice to the idea of diversification she gives voice to the idea of options she gives voice to all these financial tools that people think are super arcane and weird and developed in the 1970s but in fact have been used throughout history you know it's meant to be representative of what that book tries to do and what i like to do more generally which is bring finance down to earth you know, mm-hmm. away from all the trappings that people associate it with and bring it down to people's lives. So can I run something by you then? Yeah, sure. All right, risk management. Yeah. You grew up in New Jersey. Uh, yeah, after age eight, exactly, yeah. Did you have a prom? Did you go to proms? I did go to prom. All right, first of all, finance, finance, prom, the prom. I think it's the prom, but people just say, I'm going to prom, which is maddening to hear. Yeah, no, I use the article about okay. prom. Yeah, I went to the prom. Yeah. So risk management wise. So when I was going to a prom, I'm tra- I think I have my own pride and prejudice moment here and I want to see me. if this is it. So I had a plan to ask a girl to the prom. Yeah. Then I had heard that there was a girl that was going to ask me to the prom. Yeah. Different girl. Yeah. So what I had to do was figure out how to not interact with that other girl while trying to ask this girl to the, yeah. to the prom. Yeah. Turns out that while I was trying to potentially avoid this girl, that other girl was trying to avoid me because I'm no catch. Right. So I finally got an opportunity to ask this girl to the prom. Yeah. And there was a very long silence. Yeah. To a point where I thought, I'm going to ask again. Maybe she didn't hear me. So I asked again. <laughs> And then she said, no, I heard you. I'm just thinking. So it was oh. followed by more silence. Yeah. But then she responded with, I guess so. Wow. Is that risk management? It's a deeply touching story. Yeah. And I think we should work through it. Okay. From her perspective, she was, I think, implicitly, Chris, and I hope I'm not breaking any news to you, yeah. but you know, she was basically deciding, should I settle? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, was. or should I wait? Should I wait? Maybe there's a better offer coming or should I settle for Chris? Yeah. And I'm sorry, Chris, this is, I know, I, don't, I know you haven't quite come to terms fully with this experience, but that's kind of what's going on, right? And yeah. that kind of idea, which of course is in Pride and Prejudice as well, when Mr. Collins gives um, Lizzie Bennett basically an offer of marriage and she's like, she says no. Mm-hmm. And her mother and father think she's crazy. And so this young woman in your life basically yeah. decided, yeah, I'll settle. Which is kind of like a, it's an yeah. optimal stopping problem, which we see in finance. And it has a lot to do with kind of optionality. She gave up a lot of optionality. Yeah. She gave up the optionality to wait. Yeah. And so she surrendered her options. And, and now, of course, you're married and have three kids, and it's a great yeah. story. It's a, it's a great story. Anyway, <laughs> I just wanted to let that sit a little longer. I hate to bring it to you, but it's, it's not all about you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm... I just figured that out. It's the greatest lesson in life, Chris. Yeah. So um, let's change gears a little bit. Yeah. Why do people like me find finance so intimidating? I think many people, all too many people, find finance very intimidating. And what the course has been about, what the books have been about, and what my pedagogic career has been about is disabusing them of that idea that finance is intimidating. It's not surprising that people find it intimidating because people in finance like to intimidate other people. Like that's their source of power. And so what 
this course does and what all of these efforts do is try to make it clear that finance is fully accessible and actually is just a wonderful body of ideas. If you don't understand it, it's hard to be an investor. It's hard to be an employee. It's hard to be a manager. It's hard to succeed unless one goes under the hood and starts to understand the underlying financial engine of all these businesses. Can we take a look under the hood of a big brand? I like to think about Apple a little bit, which is obviously a company that many people love. It's arguably the most successful company of our generation. The market cap is now a remarkable $2.8 trillion. It's almost hard to fathom. People think about their products. People think about their strategy. People think about all kinds of things about, about Apple. What they don't realize is that they have just this remarkable financial model. And it's been absolutely critical to their success. Yeah. But you know, if you look under the hood, they got a real financial machine. So uh, just as one example, and it's a little nitty gritty, but it's useful to think about. Obviously, they're profitable. But Apple's model is much more powerful than just being profitable. They actually generate a ton of cash, which has allowed them to build themselves in a remarkable way without ever getting outside funding. So where does all that cash come from? So it turns out that you have to look deep inside Apple to figure this out. But what Tim Cook built is a machine. To give you a sense of what that machine is, Chris, try to guess the following. So Apple, as you know, is a retail store. Like you can go to Back Bay or Fifth Avenue and you can go into an Apple retail store and they own those stores. In retail, one of the most important things is inventory. If you want to run a good store, maybe you worked in a store as a kid. I did. And it was all about like moving inventory, right? Mm -hmm. So in the Apple store, guess how long inventory hangs around? A month, two months? Yeah. So at a lot of retailers, that would be right. So for Apple, it's about five days. Wow. Which is crazy. Now you might ask, wait, why? And why is that powerful? Well, let's put it together with two other pieces. It turns out because they're also now a retailer. And by the way, this was not true 20 years ago. They were not a retailer. Um, they also collect from their customers pretty quickly, right? Because when you go to an Apple store, you pay. And they collect really quickly as opposed to using a distribution channel. Yeah. Okay. So they're collecting pretty quickly. They don't hang on to inventory very long. And then the final piece is, guess how long they take to pay their suppliers? 60 days? Apple has averaged as long as 150 days. How is, do they do that? Well because they're Apple. So that little virtuous machine, which is what? Wait a second, they keep inventory for a really short period. They get paid really fast and they pay their suppliers like when they feel like it. Wow. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that their operations actually generate cash because it's not tied up in inventory. They're getting paid pretty quick and then they pay their suppliers when they feel like it. Wow. And that means they have a cash flow machine that drives their operations. Now, how do they get away with it? Yeah. Um, the answer is, well, you go to a supplier and you say, would you like to do business with me? Here's how it's going to work. You're going to keep the inventory until I call you at midnight the day before. And I'm going to say, I need 1,000 iPads at the Fifth Avenue store at 6 a.m. And you're going to deliver them to me. Wow. And they say, okay, and when are you going to pay me? And Apple says, when I feel like it. What? And you say, yes, sir. Let's do that again. Because they're Apple. Apple has been accused at different times of bankrupting their suppliers. I'd imagine, yeah. I mean, because they are, they're turning the screws. And this machine doesn't get built easily. <laughs> but you can see how powerful it is. Because effectively, who financed all their growth? Those suppliers. 
So that's the economic model that is underneath Apple. And if you don't understand that, it's hard to fully appreciate Apple as a company, and it's hard to appreciate how strong and resilient they can be. That's fascinating. I knew that they had the ability to do what they wanted in a lot of situations. Indeed. But that's extreme. If someone just doesn't want to meet those terms, they move on to the next person who's willing yeah. to meet those terms. Exactly. And of course, everyone's falling over themselves to do business with Apple. You know, you can draw a parallel to the way Dell pioneered this, Amazon has done this. Obviously, software as a service is about this. It, it runs throughout the economy in really interesting ways. So those suppliers, this is kind of like their risk management for them. And it's also for Apple, right? So you can't be too dependent on any supplier. So you're managing multiple suppliers, and yet you're also pressuring them in this way. And then, of course, for Foxconn or Han Hai, the question is, what do I do if I don't do business with Apple? Yeah. What, what can I do if I don't yeah. do business with Apple? Because then they're marrying the good-looking guy who's a drunk. Or they're going to the prom with Chris. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. It's okay. Yeah. Tied it all back together nicely. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> So I've got some questions. Yeah. Our first question is Mateus in Brazil. Wonderful. What skills or qualities are crucial for success in today's financial landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. And let me say what I think is not the right answer, okay? okay. Which is, it's tempting today to think that the right answer is more familiarity with data science and understanding artificial intelligence and knowing how to prompt chat GPT. I think those are relatively cheap skills. I think what is really lacking in finance and what distinguishes people who do really well is judgment and is really hmm. thinking hard about value. So what the traits are that really matter today are the same traits that have always mattered in finance, which are judgment, character, and it's consistency. And in some sense, that sounds like... Um, very old-fashioned advice, and I think it is very old-fashioned advice, but that's what mattered 100 years ago, and I think that's what matters today. And I think it matters in most fields, but it matters particularly in finance. Okay. Yeah. So with judgment, is that something someone can develop over time? It takes time? a long time, and judgment— How do they develop that? Well, so the wonderful thing about finance is you just keep investing in it, and it keeps getting better and better. So judgment matters, particularly in finance, because it's a very fast-changing world. Markets are quickly moving— and you have to make sense of tons and tons of information. And that's if you're a CFO, that's if you're an investor, that's if you're whatever you are in finance. Because you're going to be embedded in financial markets, perhaps at a corporation, but there's going to be just tons and tons of data coming. And you have to learn how to respond to that data. And you have to do it in a consistent way. And the great news about it is you learn and you get better and better at it because judgment comes by and large from experience. And so with that experience, you learn what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, and then maybe over time you get better. Uh, it's a very, very challenging field mm. because most people don't have the patience to try to develop that judgment. Yeah. But that judgment is what really, really matters. Great. Okay, so Rachel in Chicago, what are your thoughts on the future of finance in the light of technology and digital currencies? I'm going to give you a little bit of a cranky old man answer to that. Okay. Um, you know, on digital currencies, I think they're really interesting. And I think when we have the Federal Reserve or central banks around the world adopt them fully and start to develop them, that'll be really, really powerful. I'm not a big fan of 
other digital currencies or cryptocurrencies. Um, and in fact, I think they're pretty pernicious. I, I wrote a piece for the Times about five months ago about the magical thinking that has infected finance. And I think of a lot of cryptocurrencies as manifesting that, you know, that somehow we need to tear up everything and start anew. And I don't think that's really true. Um, so digital currencies, and especially central bank digital currencies, will be really powerful and really interesting. Technology will be at the forefront of finance for all kinds of reasons, because of the power of computing, because of all that information that are in these markets. There's always going to be technology that is going to be driving financial markets. And financial institutions adopt technology really fast, and they spend on technology a lot because of that fundamental nature of all that information they're trying to aggregate. And it will only become more and more important. And mm -hmm. so that's a great intersection to be at. Ultimately, as we discussed before, I think judgment is the, is the more precious asset than kind of technology. But being, you know, very secure in your understanding of that technology is a great way to build a career in finance. All right. Elizabeth in Boston asks, how can we improve financial education and empower individuals to make informed financial decisions? It's a great question and something close to my heart. You know, my efforts um, so far, including the wisdom of finance and how finance works and this online course that we worked on together, um, are really to basically demystify it and to make it clear that the ideas are totally accessible to anyone. And so that's the first step in doing it. But the bigger step that we need to do as a society is do it at a younger age. And if we really are serious about financial literacy, and we should be, then we need to start at a younger age. It's actually quite remarkable data. People exposed to financial literacy at younger ages end up amassing more wealth. Like there's good empirical research on that now. Yeah. And so just like you might think of health issues in K through 12 being taught, we should be thinking about financial health. You know, we should be thinking about exposing people to those ideas at a very young age. That's the real key to yeah. getting people to understand finance better. If I look back at growing up, I never learned anything until around 16, 17, 18, when you get your first job and you think, oh, what do I do with this money now? Yeah. That's the first time I had to think about it. And that seems crazy. It is. I think it is a little bit crazy. You know, with retail investing, in a way it's wonderful because a lot of young people are investing and that's mm -hmm. fantastic. But it's also concerning because what they're learning is a lot closer to gambling than investing. Yeah. It's a mixed bag in some sense, right? Like you, you got to feel good about people investing in stocks and learning about finance at a younger age, that's got to be nice and good. Mm -hmm. But it has this a little bit of weird, weird twist today. There's the apps, but then they also have now, especially Massachusetts, they have the sports betting apps. Exactly. And it's the same thing with a different cover. Exactly right. Like. And I think most people are going to be more comfortable in the gambling environment of that because they have this feeling of, I know this team. Sure. I can make an estimate of how much is going to happen in this game yeah. where when you say, well, think about investing in this company, it's uh, it's more of a black hole for most people. Right. Well, what they've successfully done for many of these folks have done is gamify finance, which again is wonderful if you want to get people into finance. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also really problematic if that gamification is happening in a way that is not really tethered to reality, then it's really problematic. All right. This is Alex in Beijing. How do finance and taxation intersect? And what impact do they have on business and economies? That's a great question. So my two areas are finance and tax, and I love them. They are really the lifeblood of the capitalistic endeavor and of the state. And the way in which the state and capitalism intersects is taxation. So they're hugely influential. 
they're only rising in importance and they are about in some very deep sense who gets what and why so in the finance side it's about who gets capital why they get capital and who should get capital and how do we get returns from those investments in capital and in taxation it's about you know why does the state get to take my stuff and how much of my stuff do they get to take think about capital gains taxation or dividend taxation or even income taxation think about how it changes an entrepreneur's willingness to invest in new businesses think about how it might impact a founder who has to get rid of some shares it just runs through everything and the wonderful thing is i think people understand that it's important but they don't like to think about it too much yeah. <laughs> and it's been it's it's really fun to be somebody who actually enjoys thinking about those topics Well, I'm glad you understand it because sometimes it can overwhelm a lot of people. And it is overwhelming. Both those yeah. topics are overwhelming. That's yeah. exactly right. They're both overwhelming, which is also why demystification is so important because people being overwhelmed by these things is not is not good for anyone. It's not not good for us as a society. Yeah. And the choices we make, especially on the tax side but in finance, they're really going to be important in the next decade or two. Mm. And they're going to be big decisions and if people do it without sufficient knowledge, I think that's really a problem. Thank you, Mahir. Oh, it's great to see you again. I hope you had an okay time. I had a great time. It was really great. If you'd like to learn more about finance or Professor Desai, you can pick up one of his outstanding books or check out his HBS online course, Leading with Finance, at theparlorroompodcast.com. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and X for more exclusive content. I'm Chris Lenane. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.